Then Joseph could no longer control himself before all those who stood by, and he cried out in Egyptian, Send everyone away from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. He wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard it, and the household of Pharaoh heard it. Joseph said to his brothers in Hebrew, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, so dismayed were they at his presence. Then Joseph said to his brothers, Come closer to me. I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold. God sent me to preserve life. God sent me to preserve remnant, to keep alive many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. This is the word of the Lord. You've known this story since you were children, the story of the chosen family, how Joseph was loved more by their father than were the ten older brothers. There was a younger brother, Benjamin, also born to favored wife, Rachel. Rachel died giving birth to Benjamin and was buried at a little nowhere place called Bethlehem. The ten older brothers, being goaded by Joseph to bow down to him in his dreams, sold him into slavery. He was taken down to Egypt and sold again. Potiphar bought him. Potiphar was chief of the guard for Pharaoh. Potiphar's wife liked him very much. This handsome young 17-year-old boy, she kept inviting him to her bed, and he kept refusing. One morning, she was so frustrated with him, she grabbed hold of his clothing and started to tear it away, and he ran down the hall. She screamed, and he was thrown into prison. In prison, time passed until one day, the chief cupbearer, wine steward, if you would, of Pharaoh, was thrown into prison along with his chief baker. A couple of nights later, the two of them had dreams. The next morning, they were discussing them, and Joseph said, I know about dreams. And he told the wine steward that his dream about a vine with three branches meant that in three days he would be restored to Pharaoh and continued to serve him as his chief wine steward. The baker said in his dream he had three baskets of bread, and birds kept flying down and pecking the bread away. And he said, that's not good. That means that in three days, Pharaoh will send for you and have you killed. Both dreams came true. When the wine steward was being released, Joseph said, "Uh, don't forget me. But he did, of course. And Joseph spent two more years in prison. And then Pharaoh had a couple of dreams. In one of his dreams, there were three shafts of wheat, strong just hanging so heavily with grain, followed by seven other shafts of grain. These, no grain in the heads, drooping for lack of rain. In the other dream, he saw seven fat cows come up out of the Nile River where they'd been watering. But then seven lean, gaunt cows came up out of the Nile and killed the seven healthy ones. Suddenly, the wine steward said, I know a man. In prison, he interpreted dreams correctly. The Pharaoh sent for Joseph after two years, and Joseph told him, Pharaoh, this means we're about to have seven great years. Rain is going to come when we need it. 
more wheat than we can eat, more fat cows than we need. But then we're going to have seven very dry years, difficult years when all the grain will fail to produce. Pharaoh said, wow, this is amazing. You're the men to take charge of that. I appoint you to take charge of that. Save all we can the first seven. We can sell to others the second seven. Well, it didn't rain up in Cana either. And soon enough, Joseph's brothers and father were out of food. So the father said, I want you to go south to Egypt. I hear they have lots of grain, enough to sell others. The Bible says 20 years have passed. Joseph is not 17. He's 37. He doesn't speak Hebrew. He speaks Egyptian. He doesn't dress Hebrew. He dresses Egyptian. When his ten older brothers arrive, he immediately recognizes them. They do not recognize Joseph. He was 17. He was a Hebrew. He's 37. He's an Egyptian. And Joseph sees them. He screams, spies, you've come to spy out our land. And the brothers stood there saying, no, no, we're all brothers. We have one father. There were two others. One is now dead. The younger one is at home with our father. We are not spies. We're just hungry. We've come to buy. Throw them into jail, Joseph said. And they threw them into the prison. But only for three days. After three days, he said, okay, I'm going to release you. But when you get hungry again and come to buy again, you must bring the younger brother. Oh, no way. After our father lost his other son, he would never, ever let this young one out of his sight. There will be no grain if you do not bring him. Well, they said, it will not work. It will not work. Joseph said, it will. One of you will stay here in prison until the others come back, bringing the younger son. Simeon was oldest. He had volunteered. They threw him into prison. And Joseph said, fill their sacks with grain. Then said to his servants, without their seeing you, put each man's money back in the top of his sack and tie them off. They had gone a full day's journey, going home, stopped to feed their animals, opened the sack. There was the money. Through this whole story, one word is used a lot dismayed. It was used so many times I looked it up in Webster's Big Fat Dictionary Gail got me many years ago, and it says to have a sense of dread as if something really bad is about to happen. Oh, no. They'll think we stole this grain. My money's in my sack. Well, my money's in my sack, too. They went on home to their father. But it didn't take long till all the grain was gone. They had to explain, Simeon's in prison down in Egypt. They're not going to sell us any more grain unless we bring Benjamin with us. Why Benjamin? I don't know. He said, bring the younger one or you're not getting any more grain. The father refused until Reuben said, Dad, I have two sons. You may kill them both if I do not bring Benjamin back. They were so hungry, finally Jacob consented. And nine plus Benjamin went to Egypt. Joseph recognized them immediately. They did not recognize him. 
He said to his servants, an Egyptian, prepare dinner for these men in my own house. They were invited to dinner. Joseph sat at one table, all the brothers at the other. But he instructed the waiters privately, feed the younger one more. They said Benjamin got five times as much food as his brothers. The next morning, they were getting ready to go. And Joseph said to his servants, fill their sacks with grain, put their money back in the top of each sack, and take my personal silver cup and put it into the bag of the youngest one. Do not tell them. And so the next morning, they left. They had gone a short way when suddenly part of the Egyptian forces come riding up, demanding that they be allowed to search the bags. And when they searched, they found the silver cup in the bag of Benjamin. They'd been instructed, bring them all back to Egypt. You can imagine how frightened they were. And this time it's Judah who speaks up. Judah, from whose stock will come David and Solomon generations later. And he pleads his case before Joseph, not knowing who he is. Fourteen times in his speech he mentions, Our father, our old father, he's grieving. This will kill him. It will absolutely kill him. And finally, Joseph says to the attendants in Egyptian, everybody out. And he starts to cry. And then he says what we read a few moments ago. I have three points. Number one, come closer. He says in Hebrew, come closer. I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold. takes a long time to get over such horrible things. Ten brothers would sell their younger brother for 20 pieces of silver. They think he's dead. They haven't seen him in 20 years. And he said, I'm the one you sold. I'm the one. 1988, we decided to take our two sons to see what life was really like behind the Iron Curtain. We went to Berlin. My old German professors in college who had been relieved of their duties at the University of Berlin simply because they were Jews, ended up teaching at our little Methodist college in Shreveport, Louisiana, Centenary. They were marvelous, Drs. Bruno and Bertha Strauss. They had said to me, Germany is wonderful, Germans are strong people. They will reunite their city. They will reunite their country. It's only a matter of time. You must save your money and go. You must go to Berlin. For us, walk through the Brandenburg Gate. Walk down Unter den Linden, these beautiful, magnificent trees. Pick a restaurant. Go in and show them you can order in German. Order in German. You will have a wonderful time. When we got there in 1988, one could not walk through the Brandenburg Gate. The wall went straight through it, across it. You could get to a vantage point where you could see the other side. You could see huge German shepherds and Doberman pinchers patrolling with armed guards on the eastern side of the wall. The next day, it took us an hour and a half to get through Checkpoint Charlie at Potsdamer Platz. We spent the next three weeks 
in East Germany, Poland, Hungary, Czechoslovakia. We saw what one can see of communism for three weeks. Ten years later, Gail and I were back, 1998. I'd asked her if she'd be willing to take part of our vacation to visit some of the concentration camps. The best preserved ones are in Poland. We flew to Warsaw. Rabbi Sherman had helped arrange a guide for us there. Now, this guide showed us Warsaw, and the next morning we went to Madonic, spent the better part of a day. Then we went on down to Krakow, took one day off, and the next morning he took us to Auschwitz. We were five hours there. We managed to get down a little bit of soup and crackers, and we went to Beer Canal and spent all afternoon. We walked the Judenrampa that you saw in Schindler's List and others. We caught a train from Krakow to Berlin. It had been 10 years. The wall was gone. The city was reunited. As our train approached Berlin, just looking out the window, I could count 30 building derricks, great cranes. They were putting their city back together. Ten years later, we were back again in 2008. We were back this time to see German camps. We went to Ravensbrück. We went to Sachsenhausen. We went to Buchenwald. We went to Dachau. We went to Flossenburg. In Berlin, we were in Potsdamer Platz again, where Checkpoint Charlie once had been. There's just a little piece of the wall that's left up, maybe 10, 12 feet, for people to take pictures. Otherwise, it's a very modern, beautiful plaza with great companies from around the world, from Sony to Dunkin' Donuts in Potsdamer Platz. But when you walk from Potsdamer Platz two blocks to the Brandenburg Gate, you see hundreds of great stones cover an entire city block right downtown Berlin. They look like mausoleum. They look like graves. That's what they're supposed to look like. There are, in fact, 2,711. They're all the same size as to length and width, but different in height. Different, different. And if you walk down among them, you finally find a door that takes you into a museum down below. So right between these two important landmarks, the Brandenburg Gate, which of course you can walk through now, right down Unter den Linden, these beautiful trees and order German food at a restaurant, and Potsdamer Platz, which is a beautiful modern plaza, a whole block. One reviewer said, that block with 2,711 stones is a fish bone stuck in the throat of Germany. Old sins need to be remembered to a point. Need to be remembered that when people do terrible things to other people, there's a price to be paid. There's a consequence. Number two, you did not send me here God sent me here. God sent me here. 
God sent me here. Three times he said that to them. Meaning what we Christians also affirm, that out of even the worst of circumstances, God can make good things happen. Our Rotary Club downtown here, it's one of the ten largest in the world, has as a chief fundraiser now every year the IBA Awards Dinner. It's a really special event in Tulsa. After we got the first big names to come, then others with big names in sports wanted to come. One of my favorites in all these years was Coach K from Duke. He's a very articulate person, a very capable speaker, of course, a very effective basketball coach as well. During his time at Duke, he's taken his team to the Final Four 11 times and has won the national championship four times. But one of the stories that he told, tells is about one of his players named Shane Battier. He first began by saying that my job primarily is communicating. So when I want my young men to understand the meaning of a word, I give the best example I know. When I talk about perseverance, when their tongues are hanging out and I'm running them up and down that court, I let them breathe a minute while I tell them a story about my brother Bill, who was a firefighter in Chicago for 38 years and never missed a day's work. Don't tell me you're hurting. I'm telling you to hang in there. When I want to tell them about courage, I tell them about my late friend Jim Valvano, who won a national championship with his basketball team but left a far greater legacy in the way he fought cancer and raised millions of dollars to help that search for a cure continue after he lost his battle to cancer. Well, he said it was 1999. We got to the finals against Connecticut, and we lost. Four of my starters decided to jump to the NBA. My fifth player had really been an assist to those four. His name was Shane Battier. And I told him when the other four left, you got to be my man next year. If we want to be back, you got to be my man. Said he stuttered and stammered, didn't really know how to respond. He had never seen himself that way. Well, he said, I waited till the spring semester was over and Shane went home. I called him early the next morning. He answered the phone and I said, Shane, did you wake up this morning seeing yourself as an all-conference player next year? He said, uh, uh, uh. The coach said, I hung up the phone. Next morning, I called him early. Probably woke him up. I said, Shane, did you wake up this morning seeing yourself scoring 30 points a night for Duke? He said, uh, uh, and I hung up the phone. He said a few hours passed, and he called me. And he said, Coach, please, don't hang up. And I said, Shane, I won't hang up on you if you don't hang up on you. And he became everything I knew he could be. God is saying to this dysfunctional family, I will not hang up on you. If you don't hang up on me, don't give up. We're going to make it, even in Egypt. Number three. Why did God do this? 
to preserve our people, to save a remnant, to enhance and support life. Wherever we see good being done, wherever discouraged people are encouraged, defeated people are helped to win, people with no future are shown a future, people who have no voice are given voice, God is present whether we acknowledge that fact or not. Shanthea Monroe is a pastor up in Shaker Heights, Ohio. She's written that when she was shortly out of seminary and serving one of her first pastorates, she didn't have very much money. And she saw in the newspaper on that Saturday morning that a new women's hair salon had come to town and they were doing haircuts for $7. She said, since I didn't have very much money, I decided to get one of those $7 haircuts. And when I got home, I looked in the mirror. I had one little tuft sticking out on this side and a little hair hanging down on the other side. And it didn't matter how many times I washed it, gelled it, blew it dry. It was still sticking out on one side and hanging down on the other. I really dreaded going to church the next morning. But I was the preacher. So she said, I did the best I could. And after the service was over, I stood at the door and people shook my hand and not one mentioned my haircut until one lady from the choir <laughs> came out the door after taking a robe off and whispered to me, you need to call Nan. That's all she said. You need to call Nan. After lunch... I called the woman in the choir and said, who's Nan? And she said, she's the best hairdresser in our town. Monday morning, she said, I called Nan. I pastored that church for eight more years, and I saw Nan regularly for eight years. She was marvelous at the way she could handle a pair of shears. The role of the church, Shanthea says, is to find people who are hurting, who are discouraged, who've had someone they love die, who've lost a job, and whisper, you need to see Jesus. You need to see Jesus. <laughs>